Welcome to Greensburg Baptist Church. We welcome our church family and also our visiting friends. Thank you for coming to worship with us. To find out more about Greensburg Baptist Church, our upcoming events, and other church activities, visit our website anytime at greensburgbaptist.com. Don't worry, I'm not your Gideon speaker. C.W. called me Thursday night and from his Baptist East hospital bed and asked me to introduce the Gideon speaker. I said yes because, you know, how can you say no to that? But also because of his passion for the Gideons that you know. And that passion is contagious. Uh, please can continue to pray for C.W., uh, they've got a big decision. Some doctors are meeting today as I talked to him last night. So certainly he would covet your prayers. And uh, he was on video last night at the pastor appreciation dinner. And one of the things he said struck me, and I know you'll want to know, 20 years of Gideon's in the Green County camp, 20 years, $1.2 million raised. Wow. <clears throat> you're a part of that then I asked him who's going to be who am I introducing and he said Ralph Reagan I said oh I got excited if you were here 12 years ago you heard him once before uh, he touched my heart uh, his story is so amazing um, as he shared last night you know you know, his story is getting better and better as God continues to bless his life. When I asked him last night, is there anything he wanted me to say? He said, I'm saved by grace and serving to the best of my ability. Amen. He's written an autobiography, Fallen, Felon, and Finally Faith, which tells how he got from prison to the pulpit. He and his wife are founders and co-directors of the Bread of Life and Rescue Mission in Crossville, Tennessee. The Crossville Chronicle said about his story, some people will say this story is untrue. Others will say it's unbelievable. But we know it all started with a Gideon willing to share Christ's love in a prison and what true faith in God can do. Brother Ralph, come and share with us. Not long ago, I was uh, in a little church up in uh, the hills here in Kentucky, and I went in, and uh, the pastor introduced me, and I spoke, and and after the, we got through speaking that day, he he called me to the back of the church, and of course, all the people started coming out, and we were shaking hands with them, but there was one little girl and she just kept standing around. And as she's standing around and everybody was leaving, I thought, well, there's something wrong with her. So I went over, and being an inquisitive person I am, I asked her, I said, uh, can I help you? And she said, uh, I want to give you something. She said, I've been saving this for a long time for a good cause. And I said, well, what is it? And she reached in her pocket, and she got a little purse out, and she opened it. 
And she reached down in there and she got a dollar out. And she said, I want to give you this. And I said, you were saving that for a good cause? And she said, I was. I said, well, can you tell me what the good cause was? And she said, my daddy said you were the poorest preacher he ever heard. (laughs) Sometimes people may be glad that I'm not here to preach today. But I'm here just to give you an update on the Lord that I serve and what a wonderful God he is. You know, my, my family, we grew up, we grew up very poor. I mean, when I say poor, we were the poorest of the poor. My mother and dad had nine children. One baby boy was, was, uh, my brother died at birth. But we were the first recipients of the housing projects there in Crossville whenever we first moved in and, and, uh, it was a, a struggle. My mother, my dad was an alcoholic and he, uh, he stayed drunk a lot and he abused uh, the children and my, and my mother quite a bit. And, um, one day my mother divorced him and I was, I was only about four. And when she divorced my dad, it wasn't many days later, she went to the welfare department and of course she went and asked them to uh, give her some help with her children. Well, I remember the welfare came in to the uh, house and we were standing around and one of the, the ladies from the welfare department said, well, Miss Reagan said, we've decided to help you, but we need you to give up your youngest children for adoption and we'll help you with the rest of them. Well, my mother said, no one's taken my children from me. She said, I'm sorry, but said, I don't need your money. Said, I'll take care of my children the best of my ability. So she had nine children there to raise without a daddy living in the projects. And she went to work uh, not long after that in in a bakery there in Crossville called the Mountain Farm Bakery, where she walked to work every day, rain, sleet, she didn't care. And I remember my mother bringing in food at night, whenever she would come in, and she would always fix us a, something to eat before she put us to bed. She was one of the hardest working women that I guess I've ever known in my life. But she really loved her children, and she was going to try to keep them together. But while my mother was working, that gave all of us kids there at home a lot of time that we could do whatever we wanted to do. And I was very young. I started running the streets of Crossville. And I started going around. And and finally, I wanted to try to figure out a way to help my mother out. So I went and got a job in a bar at a young age. And I started working. What I would do is I would would go in this bar. And he would lock the door on me. And I would clean the floors. And I'd clean the bar off. And I would always put the beer in and I would restock the coolers. And I would make a little money to help me with my school lunches and different things like that in school. But one day while I was in that, uh, in there one Sunday, really, I reached over inside the cooler and I got a can of beer out. And it was the worst mistake I believe I'd ever made in my life. 
because I opened that can of beer up and I drank it and it was the best tasting stuff I'd ever drank. And I fell in love with alcohol as a young boy. And I just would do anything it, and I could do to be able to take care and to keep my alcohol coming in. And I went to school one morning and I got laughed out of the school because of the clothes I was wearing by some uh, the other students there. And my mother had sewn up a pair of pants for me. And then the, before she had sewed them up, she'd put a seam because she was in a hurry. And I walked around in front of the class and they all laughed me out of school. Sometimes we don't realize what we do whenever we laugh at other kids and what they've got when they don't have what they need. And we don't realize that sometimes I've heard people say whenever, uh, well, I can handle it, but they really inside they can't handle it. They're really hurting for some kind of friendship, some kind of uh, someone to be there for them. And then laughing just pushes them further away. It pushed me to the place to where I went to the streets again. And I started drinking. And me and one of my best friends was named Raymond Atkins. And Raymond and I started running around and we started playing truancy. And it happened that one day the truant officer came and got me and Raymond. And he put us in the jail. They put us in a jail with a man who was just killed his two youngest children. His name was Big John, who was actually, at that time, he was a deputy sheriff who had went bad. And he put these two babies into a citron, and a water citron there in Crossville, and they caught him, but anyway, he, he was in jail. And they put me and Raymond in the cell with this man. And then there, the, the sheriff told him, said, uh, these two boys don't want to mind their mother and they don't want to go to school and said, maybe you can do something with them. So they put us in the cell with this man and, and, and this man, I guess, he had been in prison or been in jail for a few days for killing his two babies. And he said, uh, if you'll leave me alone, I'll not bother you. And I tell you, it didn't take much for us to leave him alone. We got up on the side of the bed there and we watched him, but we never did bother him. A couple of days later, they came and they took us and they put us in front of a judge. His name was J.T. Horn. J.T. Horn took us and he put us in reform school for truancy in Nashville, Tennessee. We were in Nashville, Tennessee in, in a, the state vocational training school and uh, we were just young and Raymond got into a confrontation one night with one of the boys there in the class in the, in the dorm where we were at. And the supervisor, whose name was Mr. Peterson, I never will forget that name, but he called Raymond up front and he made every one of us stand beside of our beds and he took Raymond into the bathroom where he beat him. He beat him for a long time. And when Raymond came walking out, he went over to his bed and he fell over. And uh, the supervisor told us to go ahead and go to bed. So we went to bed. The next morning I ran over to Raymond's bed and he had all, was already turning purple around his mouth and ears. And so we have what we call a fallout day. And in the morning times we, we all 
got into army formation. And then they would call over the intercom, whether you'd go to school, go to work, or go wherever you was going. Well, Raymond went to the clinic that day because he was hurting. And he died three days later. He was beaten so severely that uh, his heart was bleeding inside. Where, when My mother begged the judge, J.T. Horn, to let us come home and go to his funeral. We went to the funeral of Raymond, and the judge allowed us to stay home. I was so enraged and so angry at the world at that time, I lost my best friend, that I didn't want to do anything anyone told me. I just got into rebellious against my mother and everyone else, and I took back off on the street. I left at the carnival at the age of 16. I went all over the country with them, lived in the back of a no truck, drinking the alcohol that I so loved. But I ended up in reform school two more times before I was 17 years old for alcohol offenses. When I got out whenever I was 17, or just right at 18 year old, they told me my next move would be prison. Well, I didn't want to go to prison. So I wanted to try to do something. So I knew a man that had been in jail with me who owned some rock quarries and so I went to Sonny and I asked Sonny to give me a job and he helped me find a what he showed me really how to work with rock I would cut rock and and I would dig it out of the ground and I would uh, palletize it and we would sell it to people that would lay rock and I was making pretty good money but but one thing about it was he allowed me to drink every day. And one day he came to me and he told me, he said, I've been watching you for quite a while. And he said, I believe I can trust you now. So he said, I've got some other jobs to do. He said, if you will go with me, he said, I will make sure you will never go to jail. He said, we're working with some people that make sure that uh, whenever we do these jobs, they don't uh, go and that they'll not be arrested. I didn't understand the full program, but uh, he offered me a, a sizably amount of money to do a job, and I went and I'd done it. He gave me the money, and I didn't go to jail. Well, a few, and I thought, man, that was so easy. No one got hurt, nobody done anything, and I said, I believe this is the kind of life I want to live. A few days later, I met his first cousin, Connie. And Connie's been my wife now for over 44 years. But Connie is in a place, the position today that she can't travel with me. She's uh, just had uh, seven major surgeries in the last few years. She had one major surgery this uh, this year where they cut her in half to do reconstruction surgery on her. And she had over 300 staples put in her. But you know, she didn't never stay down. She's at the mission today working because she loves the Lord with all her heart and she tells me that she's praying for me and the people wherever we go, wherever I go. So anyway, I met Connie and whenever I married her, uh, I thought, well, I've got it made. I've got a wife. I've got a job that I can go in these in any time any little town that we go into. You can do the job that they pay you to do. 
No one goes to jail, and it gets to where everyone's happy. So anyway, after a few years of doing this, I had two small children at home, and I was going back and forth, and I was drinking, still drinking a lot of alcohol and doing the things I wanted to do, and I'd come home and do what I wanted to do there and see my wife a while, and then I would leave again. And it all came down to a place one night to where I was out drinking and, and I was a, a, in a renegade jeep and I flipped it seven times. And it was in the middle of February. And in the middle of February, it was really cold there in Crossville. And I landed right into a mud puddle in the front of some people's house. And they heard the crash. And whenever they got up, the husband was supposed to have said, well, I see who it is. Don't worry about it. Leave him alone. He's where he needs to be. I laid there in a mud puddle for seven and a half hours. The next morning, a lady going to work at the prison came by and saw my Jeep laying there. And she saw the body laying on the side of the road. And she called the ambulance. The ambulance came and got me. They called my mother and my sister and they said, we have a corpse in the hospital and we believe it's your son. My mother came down to the Sparta Hospital and my sister. And the first thing they said out of my mother's mouth was, he's not dead, let me in there to him. And they said, no, ma'am. They said, uh, he's beyond help. said, you, you, you don't want to see him. She said, yes, I do. And she insisted. And so she went in and they pulled the sheet off of my head. And she said, my son is not dead. He said, he's alive. They went and got a little old mirror and put underneath my nose. And, uh, and the doctor saw a little bit of... Uh, moisture come off and he said no he's still got life in him said get him upstairs now so they brought me out of that and whenever I was laying in the room I woke up and there were three women praying at the foot of my bed and they looked at me and I looked at them and I said I don't need your prayers I said there's nothing wrong with me said I'm all right I said, I need you to get out of my room. So they, they left. And that was, that was the beginning of a time that I couldn't understand what was going on in my life. But I went back and my wife and everyone there was sort of upset at me. And after I got out of the hospital, no one wanted anything to do with me. So finally the people I was working with, they came to my, and they told me they didn't need me anymore. And I said, what do you mean you don't need me anymore? And they said, well, with your attitude and the way you treat people and stuff, said, we just don't need you with us anymore. And I said, well, I'll do anything you need me to do to stay because I need the money coming into my home. Well, it was a few days later, but they came and they told me if I would be a front man that they would keep me in this organization. It was called the, the crime syndicate. It was under, and, uh, and I didn't realize the fullness of all, everything they'd done. 
but I really enjoyed the money and, uh, and all the things that I got to do, the benefits from it. So they finally came to me and they said, if you'll be a front man, we will allow you to stay with us. Well, I didn't know what a front man did, but they said, you carry a weapon with you. And said, anywhere you go, we got one man you will follow. You will go with him, and wherever he goes, you will take care of him. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Because I've never seen anything happen in this organization since I'd been there. But So I took the weapon they gave me, and, uh, and I started going down to Chattanooga, and I met a man, and he was a great old big, huge man. And everywhere he went, I had to go with him. And I made sure that no one bothered him. Well, we got into a bar one night, and sure enough, there was an incident happened where two men were shot. They come and they got me, and they put me in jail for it. They took me and they put me right back into the same cell that I had been in since I was just 12 years old. As a, I waited for the people to come and get me and get me out of jail, but they didn't. My mother, who was a hard-working person, she paid my bail and got me out of jail. They brought me, and I went back home with her, and, and my wife and everyone was afraid of me at that time, didn't want me around. But as I was sitting there in my mother's house one evening, I asked my mother, I said, would you give me enough money to buy a beer? I need a beer. And she did. And I walked right up the corner to the store, right up the road, and uh, when I came back in my home, there was a man sitting at the table. His name is Frank Downey. And he had a 12-gauge shotgun, and he had my mother hostage. My mother was sitting on the couch, and here was the table. And he looked at me, and he said, Are you Ralph Reagan? And I said, Yes, I am. He said, I've come to kill you. And I started shaking. I only weighed about 140 pounds. And I was really just a tore to pieces in a way. And I said, well, can I have a beer? And he said, yeah, I said, I've never killed a man that I don't know something about. And he took one of the beers and I sat there and we started drinking a beer. And we talked for about 15 minutes or so. And he got up and he said, I don't believe you're going to be the one who turns state's evidence on us. He said, but if you do say anything... I will come back and finish what I started to do. He got up from the table and he walked out the door. He went down to a little old town in Red Bank where he lived. He got pulled over by two police officers and he shot and killed one of the police officers that night and shot the other officer who was pretty well wounded, but he lived. They gave... This man, 76 years in the state penitentiary in Nashville. And I'm going to just tell you one, I, I put a little brochure together and I sent it into the prisons and the jails there in, in Tennessee and all over, it goes all over now. But, uh, but Frank one day was in the prison system in Nashville and he picked up one of my brochures. And he looked and he saw my picture on the front of it with my wife. And he went to the chaplain's office and he said, this is the man that I was sent to kill. He said, are there any way that I can get contact with him and talk with him? I want to see 
if this man is for real in what he's doing. Chaplain called me. I worked at the prison down in Bledsoe County for 31 years now, but he called me, and we made an appointment for me to see this man. His, he called me, and he asked me one thing. He said, are there any hope for me? There's so many people in the world today that are looking to other people wondering if there are really any hope for them. And whenever I said, yes, Frank, there is hope for you, and yes, I'm, I'm really real in what I'm doing. I said, Jesus is the Lord of my life, and all I want to do is serve him. Well, I made a special day to go to Nashville. I went in, and I led this man to Christ. I led him to Christ on the phone, but I wanted to make sure that he was, uh, knew what he was talking about. And I went down, and I sat down in the cell with him, and he went the next day and told the uh, chaplain what happened. And whenever he did, they baptized him. And he died three months later with cancer. The man that was sent to kill me, who had killed a police officer and who was just a, a man, the grace of God will reach down further than anyone will ever imagine if they will just really let him. But after he left that night, I went back to court a few days later. The judge gave me a long term in prison. And I went to the prison system in Nashville, Tennessee, where I was behind the walls. And it took me a while, but I figured a way, and I escaped prison. When I escaped prison, I took off, and I went back to the only place I knew to go to, and I went back home. When I got back home, I, I walked in, and I to my wife's house and my wife stopped me in the front room and she said uh, Ralph you're no good she said your children are afraid of you I'm afraid of you and said we want you to leave and I asked my wife I said would you please let me just rest a few minutes I said I'm so tired but before I even got a chance to rest the police started coming around the road there, and we saw them, and they started surrounding my wife's house, and I went out the back door, and I made my way over to a little old uh, park, state park there in Crossville, and I hid from them till they got to the place that I went back over to my mother's home late that night. I went into my mother's house, and, and she was standing next to the stove, next to the back, in the, going in the back door, and my mother turned to me, and she said, Ralph said, you're no good. Said, you bring trouble to my home every time you come. And she said, I just really don't want you here. And I said, but mother, I have nowhere else to go. She said, well, you're going to have to find somewhere else to go because you're not staying here. My oldest brother came in to the back door and he had a fifth of whiskey in his hand. And he said, let's take a drink and maybe we'll find somewhere to take you. And I was sitting there trying to find a way to go, where to go. And I started drinking the whiskey with him, and I took a few drinks, and I passed out. I woke up, and there was a, a man named Danny Smith, who was a, a deputy sheriff there. He works at the Coyote Tractor Place in Crossville now, been there for years. He put a gun, and he pointed it right to my nose, and he cocked the trigger. 
He said, Ralph, you're not worth the bullet or the powder in this bullet to me. He said, you're just no good. But he said, if you start to run again, he said, I will shoot you. He said, so I'm going to tell you, you're going back to where you belong. They handcuffed me and they put me back in a police car and they took me back to the jail. They took me back to the same cell that I was back in whenever I was 12 years old. But this time, the one who opened the door and put me in was my baby brother, Timmy. And Timmy looked at me and he said, Ralph, don't ask me for any favors because you're just no good and I don't have anything for you. Well, they locked me up in that cell and that was a Friday night. Saturday came and visitation came and went and no one come to see me. My family of none. My wife, no, none of them. But every time I'd been in that jail since I was just a young man, there would be two to three Gideons come in. And they would walk up the stairs and they would tell people about Jesus. This, this Saturday, there were three Gideons and one of their names was Earl Reagan. Earl had just had a plastic implant put in his hip, hip implant. He wasn't even supposed to be out of his house. But he couldn't pass up the opportunity to go to the jail because it was a ministry that God had called him to do. And he wanted to tell people about a loving God that he served. And he came around to the cell, and I never will forget, he said, can I pray with you and give you a, a Bible? I said, I don't want your Bible, and I don't want you praying for me. I said, just leave me alone. He went to the next cell down, and he was standing there, and I was sitting there in my cell, and I, and I, couldn't, I couldn't think, I couldn't do anything. I was at a place of hopelessness in my life. I didn't have anywhere else I could turn to. And finally, this man, Earl Reagan, told the people over the next door cell to me. He said, you know, Jesus loves you just like you are. He said, God loved me enough that he took alcohol away from me. And what he done for me, he'll do for you. And then he said it again. He said, Jesus loves you just like you are. I've never been told in my life that Jesus loved me. I've never been told anything. The only thing I can remember about church was when I went into a church one time when I was just a young boy, I wanted to see what it was about. They wouldn't let me in because I was, they said, filthy. It was right next to the project's. Whenever he left that day, he didn't realize that the message he was giving the people in that cell was actually going to me. Because I'd never been said, told or anything that Jesus loved me. And he gave, as he come by my cell, he had a Bible just like this one. They had just taken the old Bibles out of the, uh, the motel. They had taken and put new ones in it. And they always bring the old ones and they give them to the uh, prison or to the jails. 
to the women and men's. And, um, and he said, well, God's compelling me to leave this Bible here. And I said, you leave it wherever you want to. It's not going to bother me. So he reached in and he laid it next to my bunk and he went on. That night in the Cumming County Jail, it was actually pouring down the rain on a Saturday night. And usually people were up playing cards or watching TV or doing something. But that night, everyone in the jail was asleep but me. I couldn't sleep. All that kept coming back to my mind was, is no one in my family wanted me. My brother, who worked downstairs, wouldn't even come up to see if I needed anything. And here was a man telling me that Jesus loved and cared for me just like I was. And I got to the place to where I looked out and right at the third bars of the window there was a street light. And if you got up on your bed, you know, your bunk, you could read or you could write. But I reached over and I picked the Bible up and I don't remember where I started reading that night. But I just started reading some of God's Word and I said, God, if you're really truthfully the one that He's talked about, if you really love me, I said, I really need it. I really need something in my life. And I said, if you will save me, as he was talking about today, I said, I promise you, I will never, ever turn my back on you again. I said, God, I'm asking you to forgive me my sin. And I'm accepting what Jesus Christ done on the cross for my sin. Man, I, I laid down... And I slept the best sleep I ever had. I woke up the next morning in that jail and I thought, well, Lord, I know there's something in here for me. And I said, I want to know what it is. So I got God's word out and I started reading it. And they'd come and they brought breakfast and, and all the guys come and they said, are you going to eat? And I says, no, I don't want anything to eat. I want to read what God wants me to do. I said, there's something in here for me. I said, I know he's real. He spoke to my heart last night. And I said, I got saved in the, here last night. And I said, I want to tell you that this Bible and the God of this Bible is real because he visited me last night. You know, they all thought I went crazy they called the sheriff and told the sheriff, they said, you need to get this man out of the cell with us. He's not the same man we used to know. The sheriff came upstairs and he said, what's the commotion about? They told him. And they said, well, he said, don't worry about this man. He said, where he's going? He said, he's going to be there a long time. Well, they did. They took me back to prison. They put me back into the prison system. But I went back in this time with a different attitude than I've ever had. Every time the chapel doors was open, I wanted to go. I wanted to go to every service. I was the only person in the state of Tennessee in the prison system at the Nashville, Tennessee, that the Muslims would even allow to come into their service because I told them one day, I said, if you have the truth, I need to know the truth. Why would you keep the truth from me? I said, I am seeking to find out what God wants. And I never will forget what the Muslims told me. They said, man, you're for real, aren't you? And I said, yes, I want to know more about who Jesus is. So they allowed me to come into their services. I went to every service that the chapel had. 
And then the Holy Spirit started leading me and directing me to where I needed to be and what services I need to be into and where I need to go. And as I read and studied the Word of God, I, I started deleting some of the other programs and I started going and listening to the good gospel message that the Baptists teach. <laughs> so I was in the... And one day, there was a rite took place in the prison. The rite took place and they came and they told me that they were... Uh, going to be a lockdown so they locked down the prison and I was sitting there and they got they come and got me to clean up some of the mess in one of the one of the units so I went down and met another young boy that was with me they called us the salt and pepper team because he was black and I was white and we worked together we really thought a lot of each other and we were working together and these men hollered out at us, and they told us, they said, if you touch our stuff, you will pay for it. Well, I had just read where God says that you obey the ones and rule over you. The ones and rule over me at that time were the guards and the people there at the prison. So I kept cleaning it up. The next day, my buddy went out, and they called him back, and they grabbed him, and they stabbed him 17 times. They killed him. I watched him carry his lifeless body up on the street, uh, up on the yard going towards the hospital. They came to my cell and they told me, they said, we know that you are trying to do what's right. They said, so we're going to give you an opportunity to check in. They said, if you will check in, we'll not bother you. Check in is where you go whenever you're afraid of the other inmates. I said, well, I'm not afraid. And I said, I'll be back out on the yard tomorrow. I said, because the God I'll serve will take care of me. I went back. And on the yard the next day, there were two men come out beside of me going on the yard, and they grabbed me by the arms. One came in behind me, and one was standing in front of me. They called him the Sheik because of a headband that he always wore. And he said, you know what time it is. And I says, well, I'll tell you this. If I die here today, I'm going to die loving you and praying for you. Because the Bible says for me to live is Christ and die is gain. And that brother, that Muslim brother looked at me and he said, man, you are for real, aren't you? I said, if you mean for serving the Lord, yes, I'm for real. And he just took his arms and he went like this. When he did, the two men behind me walked away and one of them threw the shank over next to the wall and they walked away. The next day, on the prison wall at the prison grounds, the Muslims went and told everyone. They said, you leave that man alone. Said he is for real. And if he wants to, uh, to tell people about his God, you let him alone. God says, when your ways are pleasing with me, I will even bring your enemies with peace. He brought the enemies with peace with me, and they became my protectors the rest of the time I was there. One night while I was in my cell, the Lord spoke to my heart through the Word as I was sitting there. And He said, Ralph, I'm going to let you go home. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but here I am in prison, and God's going to let me go home. 
So I went on the yard and I started telling everyone that God was going to allow me to go home. They all said, man, you're crazy. God don't speak to you like that. And just like I told them again, I said, well, I read in the Bible where it says, my sheep hear my voice. I heard God's voice tell me what he was going to do. And a few days, a few weeks, whatever went by and nothing happened. Everyone on the whole yard knew that I was going to, the old crazy boy who said God was going to release him. Well, one night... I was in my cell and I said, Lord, what am I doing wrong? And it just came to my heart. It's just like this. It don't seem like you want to go anywhere. So I reached under my bed and I got my duffel bag out and I packed everything in my cell and I set it right next to the front door and I said, God, I'm ready to go. Three days went by. The whole prison came by and they laughed at me. They said, man, you're crazy. But at 7.45 in the morning, that's when everybody's going to and from work. The guards are changing over. I was out in front of the main Sally Port, and they called my name, Reagan, 94399, bag and baggage. That means you're leaving. And the whole prison just stood still, and they turned, they turned and they looked at me, and I said, I told you so. <laughs> the guard came out. He said, how long is it going to take you to pack your stuff? I said, my things are already packed. I'm ready to go. He didn't believe me. I went to my cell and I just reached in. I got my toothpaste and stuff off the sink. And I just thought it in my bag and my bag was already packed. I got, to te- I got to tell that man about Jesus on the way out. That guard. Make a long story short, I went to the only judge in... in uh, in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, the third district judge for the felony escape, his name was Judge Balasars. He was the only judge that was, uh, at the time, could do what he was getting ready to do. But he said, Mr. Reagan, he said, you have been found guilty of a felony escape. And he said, under the laws of the state of Tennessee, I have to give you five years for this. And I said, sir, I want a lawyer. And he said, well, you don't need a lawyer. You've already pled guilty. I said, yes, sir, I need a lawyer. So he went ahead and gave me a lawyer. The lawyer he gave me was a Jewish man, fully, full-blooded Jewish. And I was the last case that he was going to receive until he was being transferred to Oklahoma. And he came to me and he told me, he said, just go ahead and take your time and plead guilty to this because you did escape. And he said, get it over with and go and do your time. I said, well, I can't do that because there's a judge higher than that judge that told me I was going home and I've got to listen to him and his name is Jesus. He said, they always send me these ones. (laughs) We went back in front of Judge Balasaris a few days later and as we did, the judge says, have you come to anything to do with this uh, on an agreement. And he said, Your Honor, said the only thing we can do is put him to the mercy of the court. He pleads guilty. The judge says, Mr. Reagan, I have no other alternative but give you the five-year maximum penalty for this felony escape. My lawyer looked at me and said, You should have took the plea. I took and I said for a minute, I just bowed my head and I said, God, this is not what you told me. And about the time I said that, the judge took his glasses off and he laid them over on the corner of the desk. I never will forget the way he done it. But he said, there's something inside of me telling me I've got to turn you loose. 
He said, Mr. Reagan, he said, I'm giving you a five-year probation for a felony escape, which is totally against every rule and law in the state of Tennessee. He released me from the, the jail that day. I went home, wasn't home three hours. They put me back in jail, thought I'd escaped again. The sheriff came to me, and he told me after he found out what, is, what had happened with the charge, he said, Mr. Reagan, he said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to have you back in jail before the end of the month is over, and you will finish your time. That's been over 32 years ago. I went to the First Baptist Church there in Crossville where the three Gideons that brought me a Bible was. They allowed me to come in, and, and after a while, I became the church's janitor. And I loved the work inside that church. I would clean toilets. I would do whatever they asked me to do because for the first time in my life, I was doing something I felt was productive. Later on, and about four years later, I became the First Baptist Church's pastor. I started ministering the gospel to the people on the outside of the church. We started bussing people in. We got the old bus out that was sitting there, and before we realized it, we had a bus ministry with people on the streets and everywhere in the trailer parks coming in. In less than three months, we baptized over 30-some people, that, had, and we were seeing people saved in the jail ministry. We opened up the jail ministry and it got to the place to where they told me that I needed to go back and get my education if I needed to do anything else. So we found one school that would accept me, which was uh, here in Kentucky. I went back to Kentucky. I'd done high school at night because I only had a sixth grade education. In less than three and a half years, I, I graduated with the highest honor there at the college in Kentucky that they could give. Plus, I graduated from high school. And then I went back home and I borrowed $100,000 from the bank, and I bought two old buildings and went out and bought the, the old Nazarene church, and we, uh, we, we, went, we went in, and we got it fixed to where I started taking people off the streets. In less than, uh, in less than two years from the time I'd done that, we started buying up the other property around us. We opened a, uh, a uh, uh, hospital clinic through this little old mission, well, we had 17 doctors who come and give of their time now, and they uh, see people on Mondays and Thursdays, and it's all free. We open a store uh, where if someone in that community needs furniture, clothing, shoes, or whatever they need, we give it to them on a voucher system that don't cost them anything. Uh, I tell people, as long as God's people is given to me, why should I charge people who don't have and whenever we started looking at this and seeing what all was going on, it, it went out. And then we bought, we bought up over five other houses there, which were all fully paid for. We tore them down, and we built a million-and-a-half-dollar building there that's fully paid for. And we're housing 100 people a night. We have a commercial kitchen that we serve anywhere between five and 7,000 meals a month now. And God has allowed me, since we've been open, to baptize over 11,000 men, women, and children. Amen. 
my wife, she takes care of the mission when I'm gone. And she's now, she's there today. She's got tubes running out of her stomach, but I guarantee you she's down there cooking for the people coming in. We have a staff, we have 12 staff who are all paid staff now. We have a, a prison ministry that we go, I've been going to prison now for 31, 31 years in September. We have a, a jail ministry where we work with the court systems on anybody needing drug, alcohol treatment. I'm the new counselor because I went on and got my doctorate of theology and my counseling license to be able to go back to the jail and help the ones that were in the same situation I was in to show them their there is hope. We have seen such miracles take place there in Crossville, and we've seen so many people saved. We've seen so many lives change. We have taken people off of methamphetamine who are in the gospel ministry now, doing jail ministries, doing ministries all over the state of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana. We've seen so many miracles happen that I could go on and on and on and on and on. But I'm just here to tell you, people like C.W., Sandy, and the other Gideons that we have in here, the ministry that they're doing you just don't realize how far in the lines of life that it will go. And I thank God for C.W. and what he does here and for the other Gideons, but I thank God for the ones there in Crossville, Tennessee, who brought me a Bible in a time and a place of my life that I never thought that there would be hope for me any again. On Jan uh, July the 27th of this year, just a few months ago, I got a phone call at 9.30, around 9.30. The man who works at the prison with me answered the phone, and he couldn't hear it. He said, it sounds important. said, you might want to take this. I can't understand him. And he handed me the phone, and it was the governor of the state of Tennessee, Mr. Haslam. He said, Mr. Reagan, he said, I want to commend you for all the work you've done in Crossville. I want to commend you for the work you've done in the prison system and all that you do for other people. And he said, I want to give you another opportunity now. He said, I want to give you a full pardon as of today. He said, you've got a clear record. You can do whatever you need to do that will, uh, will assist you in the work of the ministry that you do. So I'm the one of the three people in 12 years that's received a pardon from the state of Tennessee for the crimes I committed whenever I was young and stupid. People don't ever think that one drink won't take you for you don't want to go because one drink will. But I thank God that the power of Christ is there to break it. And he'll break it and he'll keep it broke if you'll let him. Now I don't know where you're at here today. I don't know where you're at spiritually. But if you're here and you're a Christian, I want you to pray for the ones who are lost. I want you to pray that God will move upon them in a way like they've never been moved upon because time is short. We don't know how much more time we have left in this old world. But I want to tell you what. My motto is one more soul. One more soul. So as the pastor comes and you're here and you're not saved, I pray that before you walk out those doors today, you'll make things right with God. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.